There are worlds out there where the sky's burning, where the seas sleep and the rivers dream. People made of smoke and cities made of song. Some of there's danger, some of there's injustice, and somewhere else the tea's getting cold. Come on, Ace, we've got work to do. Hello, and welcome to Two Broads and Two Deep, a podcast about the Doctor Who Virgin New Adventures from Time Bomb Genesis to the Dying Days. I am Anthony Carroll, and with me is... Alistair Shaw. Hello. Hello. How are you doing, Alistair? Oh, I'm custom technology, Anthony, but apart from that, grind. How's yourself? I'm, I'm not bad. I'm not bad. I'm glad we thankfully got there, as it's been a power of effort to, to try and get the technology to work for this. But thankfully, uh-huh. we're there now, at least. <laughs> yeah, we got there. So, yeah. yeah. I guess this podcast is just going to be about the, the Virgin New Adventures um, from the 90s, 91 to 97. Um, I wanted maybe actually just to kick off and find out how you first maybe got into it or heard about them in the first place. Well, sadly, I'm old enough to remember them coming out the first time around. <laughs> Although, in my defence, I grew up in an island and then a small village. So we didn't get an awful lot of bookshops, and I was still waiting, pre-internet for the most part, I was still waiting to find out when the Series 27 was coming out. <laughs> hadn't, hadn't quite given up hope by that point, and I came across Love and War in John Menzies in Glasgow, which gives you an idea of how old how long ago it was, because it wasn't W.K. Smith's that yet. And I looked at it, I was tempted, I was Lee Sullivan in the cover, it was hard to go wrong, Paul Cornell writing it, it was... Unfortunately, I looked at it, realised it was book nine in a range, and the previous books were a quartet and a trilogy. I thought, I'll oh, maybe come back to that. Um, by the time I came back to Glasgow, because we didn't come to Glasgow very often, because the city was a scary, scary place to village folk, there was a lot more of the books out, and it was just, it seemed to, well, the same reason people avoid it just now, it just seems too much of an effort. By the time I became fully aware of it as a ranger that it was now replacing the TV series, I, would, I felt it was too far in for me to catch up at any decent rate. So I relied on my local library in Johnston for catching up with the, the books, and they did not get them in very often. And when they did, it was it was mid-arcs and just oh, bits and pieces. And believe it or not, the first one I read properly was The Dying Days. <laughs> Up until then, I contented myself with like, the targets and the, a couple of the missing adventures and such that it came up. But for the most part, the first proper new adventure I read was The Dying Days. It's quite a good jump on point, people. <laughs> and given we're both big fans of The Seventh Doctor, the first AMA I ever read was the one with The Eighth Doctor in it. it was like... <laughs> <laughs> but there was a huge push at that time because the TV movie I just aired, there was a bit of a revival that was talking about this being the new series and moving on. So I read the book excited to read it about the same time thinking, well, this is obviously going to finish now because we've got the series back. And it was a wee while before we realised that, no, no, we don't have the series back. It's just going to be that one movie. I mean, you were correct in one assumption. The, the range did end. It just didn't yeah. mean that there was going to be a TV show. Because <laughs> the BBC took it back in house shortly after that and the three days are a different thing altogether. There's other podcasts yeah. you can listen to, my folks. We're all about the hippies here. Exactly, it's all all about all about the Virgin New Adventures here um, for now. <laughs> yeah. So annoyingly, I read the Dying Days, had a copy of it in my hand, and handed it back to the library. And even with the library markings, I didn't think how much this actually worth now. Yeah, John's, Johnson's library can be done without that copy. 
you could have you could have get, got more use out of it from compared to them. Oh god, I but I read it again a few years, but after that because the BBC had that and Long Barrel and Human Nature up on the website for the longest time, completely whole new set of illustrations. So I really got into it when I discovered that there was Doctor Who fandom online. And I started going to things like the Forerunner of Gallifrey Base and the Doctor Who Reference Guide and realising that, oh, it's not actually that much, it's not that big a, a section you can't get into it. The problem was getting hold of the books. That remains a problem to this day. And we both know there's ways it needs to get hold of the books and read them if you really want to. It's getting hold of actual physical copies of the books remains tricky. There's been a few reprints over the years, but it, even then the reprints that they do are like human nature. And I got a deep print because they made it into an actual Doctor Who episode. And but it's if you're reading the books, though, it comes in the middle of an arc. Is it just human nature they did for the seventh Doctor. Yeah, um, that was the one that they chose for the BBC book style um, reprint yeah. that they were doing um, compared to any other. And yeah, I mean that's that's one of them. Not not to say that it was the one that got me in, into the range, but it was one I picked up. A, a while later, um, after the first one I picked up, because, um, spoiler alert, the first one I picked up was Time Worm Genesis, <laughs> um, which is why I did not pick it up for another few years. <laughs> um, but I did find that Human Nature book um, when they reprinted with BBC Books, and I read it, and, you know, I, I love that story. I, I love mm. the Human Nature story, but in terms of its continuity, like how it begins at the beginning with this sort of kind of marketplace, and Be- Benny is there, I was like, who is Benny? Um, yes. all of this sort of stuff um, kind of came into it and I can see how that might not have worked for folk um, especially during the context of having an actual TV series on to, to suddenly see this book mid-flow into its own range in the 90s and that's always going to be a problem with new adventures and if you want to start at the start you start with Time Worm and Time Worm's do you just get that out of your mouth Time Worm's not great that's the thing that I was going, yeah, the main thing I think everyone would be thinking about with, with this range is how do you start off a book range of Doctor Who in the first place? Um, and I think Time Worm Genesis is a good example of how not to start a book range. Um, or indeed any range about <clears throat> Doctor Who. Like we even think about, you know, the TV series itself and how Rose is a fantastic catch-on point. Mm. And since then they've done lots of good catch-on points for folk to join that show. Um, if you were to do that with the books and if you were trying to to bring in readers into the Doctor Who world, the, this this book would, would not be that, I think. Um, no. It's, no. I mean, it's, if John, give John Peely's due, he does try to do that. He has the whole Ace has lost our memory. Let's learn who Ace is together. And it, yeah. I can see what you tried to do, but it didn't really land. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I guess just before we go into the book itself, I guess in that way, um, John Peel as a writer as well, he's not he's not done too much. I don't think he actually did any other Virgin New Adventures, but had you had any experience since then reading his stuff? I know he did the two Eighth Doctor uh, Dalek books and such. Um, he tends to be Doctor Who or Doctor Who adjacent. He did a couple of targets that were pretty well received. I think it was a da- mm-hmm. Dalek's Master Plan. And when given his own story to work with, and he can put bones on it, he does absolutely fine. But by in his own words, he wanted to be the first person to write a completely original Doctor Who novel. And that meant writing at speed and getting it out. And reading through Bookworm, 
by Anthony Wilson and Robert Smith, they think it's it reads as if it wasn't proofread. It reads as if it was spell-checked and then put out. <laughs> I think some of it is not spell-checked and there's some very interesting spelling errors in it. <laughs> Even the front, even the book cover of it, Anthony, was Genesis with a Y. I've yet to come across <laughs> a decent explanation as to why Genesis has got a Y in it. I, I think there was some form of logical reason about it being yieldy sort of typing, but even then, it's, it's, it's a bit pretentious and, you know, coupled with the actual spelling mistakes that are kind of laced within the book, it doesn't give a good logic towards no. it being proper proofread. <laughs> so, so I guess maybe just to, to talk about what that this book actually is for Time Worm Genesis. Um, I'll just read the blurb and we'll see actually how close this is to what, what we actually see in, in the book. So this is what the blurb says on the back. Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization, In the fertile crescent of land on the banks of the rivers Tigris and Euphrates, Mankind is turning from hunter-gatherer into farmer, and from farmer into city-dweller. Gilgamesh, the first hero-king, rules the city of Uruk. An equally legendary figure arrives in a police telephone box. Thetardus has brought the Doctor and his companion Ace to witness the first steps of mankind's long progress to the stars. And from somewhere amidst those distant points of light, an evil sentience has tumbled. To her followers, in the city of Kish, she is known as Ishtar the Goddess. To Doctor's forebearers on ancient Gallifrey, she was a mythical terror, the Time Worm. Yeah, there's some interesting ideas, perhaps, within that blurb yes. that are not explored. Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, this, this is set in Mesopotamia and such, but how is your Mesopotamian knowledge in terms of the legends of, of Gilgamesh and such? Uh, not great. I've limited to Marvel's Eternals and that's about it really. It's not fantastic but I don't think you'd have a gra- firm grasp of the history to realise this book is mostly based in the history. My only other reference for Mesopotamia and I'm saying that wrong, I'm very sure I'm saying that wrong, was when the 11th Doctor mentioned it in Day of the Doctor. He talked about a week in ancient Meso- Mesopotamia. That only really hit for me when I was reading it for the second time, and it's like he spends a week travelling across it, and it's like, did they reference this in Day of the Doctor? Yeah, it's an interesting, again, to talk about how you'd start a book series like this. I don't know if Mesopotamia is is the place you would go to, first and foremost, to to start a a new rip-roaring adventure. I do like, there's one idea I do like about this, and it's mentioned in the blurb, but it's not really mentioned in the book itself. Is, is this idea of a, it says an equally legendary figure arrives yeah. with the, And so I was like, oh, we might see comparisons between um, Gilgamesh and the Doctor, um, but also um, in terms of, because they have a companion as well. Um, so Gilgamesh um, has, is it Enkidu? Is, yes. is a sort of Neanderthal companion and, and Ace as yep. well. And so there's an interesting parallel there, but again, it's not in the book, really. <laughs> no, there's a few nice references to it when Ishtar goes, oh, I've heard of the Time Wars, they're mythical creatures, and it's like, that's a really good idea. Mythical creatures who have themselves got a mythology and the Doctor's part of that mythology. There was parallels there for the taking, and John Peel has just gone, yeah, that was a thing, move on. Yeah, 
it's all very surface level of stating that, but not using it, not delving into that, um, or making any sort of interesting yarn out of it. In in particular, for me, that kind of Gilgamesh um, Doctor kind of parallel, which they could have done because of you know his adventures and and how he's in myth in mythology this um, bolsterous kind of adventurous person, and and the Doctor as well. Uh, there's no comparison of that. There's no conflict between the two because you know Gilgamesh is a s- sex-driven oh. like brute, whilst the Doctor is is not quite that. <laughs> but there's no conflict of that. In fact, it's the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, because Gilgamesh is they say he's one-dimensional, so maybe flesh him out a bit more than John Peel did. There's no substance from there. He's a one-note pervert character and. I'm led to believe that Gilgamesh did some great things and was quite pivotal to history, but there's no trace of that in this book mm-hmm. at all. And even the end yeah. of it, when they're talking about how all this will be written to focus on Gilgamesh, there was a line begging to be used, oh, I wonder if there's a version of the story out here where the Doctor's the central character. It's there for the taking. I mean, that's the thing. To be honest, Gilgamesh is such a unused character in this like he has no agency within this story the only slight amount is is how Ishtar is is slightly spun by him at the beginning uh, because he doesn't and, and, and this is another thing as well the, the sex politics of this book because mm. he says oh well you're not a woman so so I can't have sex with you and you're not a man so I can't um, fight you so I'm not interested in you and it's it's a bizarre idea that this book has and you'd think that's constrained to Mesopotamia but it's it's not really um that this sort of sex politics is driven throughout the whole book in, in all oh. characters and I guess I, I, we need to talk about that in the room about how horny this book is in such oh. a creepy way because imagine you are like we've been saying Someone who's heard about Doctor Who and you see this on the shelves and you're like, oh, that's that show that was on maybe two years ago. Let's, I'm going to buy that book and see what it is. You get in, what, 20 pages in and your first interaction with the TARDIS crew is the companion in the scud waking up and trying to go through remembering who she is and such. But there's lots of detail about her trying to get dressed. I was like, that's that, I don't remember that happening in, in Doctor Who. It's it's such an odd, odd idea to be honest, fantasy that John Peel has about in particular women he has in this story. Uh, and and starting that off with Ace was was bizarre. Well it reads like it was written for a teenage boy by a teenage boy. There's just no art to it whatsoever and it's I mean, we touched this before, just before we started recording. There's so much involved in this about talking about seeing things through the through the lens of the time, but there was no need for Ace to be naked waking up. It's an it's a thread that he consistently has, and like you say about this being a teenage idea about being adults, basically. Uh, this is this is continuing throughout it, including what you were saying about the Doctor saying, "Oh, this is part of the time period," and it's one of the the key issues I have with this is. Um, it's about, in fact, I have written the exact page number because it, it struck me so much when going through the book. And it's at page 119, page 120 of this. Ace is talking about how Gilgamesh is such such a brute and such a, a leech um, and in terms of his sexual desire. 
because he's he's been having scenes in, in this book already of like fondling literal teenagers in this book. And not even mature teenagers, it was like 13-year-olds. It was like... Yes. Like, it's one thing, because I believe in the mythology of Gilgamesh that is explored about how people have had enough of him just being an absolute, like, sex maniac. And the companion that he now has with Enkidu is sort of there to basically distract him into the into the world and adventures of fighting other men and all this. But that's not brought into into the fore of, of society in this in this society, knowing that this is a bad thing that he's doing. It's only just viewed through the lens of jealousy by his wife. It's mm. not viewed through the lens of this is a creep. <laughs> to the point that the doctor does not challenge this. And that's what happens in this wee bit here where um, Ace is saying that doesn't seem right to me. But um, the doctor says, oh, you know, I didn't say it was right, Ace. Uh, but in this culture, it's considered acceptable. And we just need to be more accepting, basically, of this culture. And this idea from that doc- from the Doctor saying that is absolute opposite of where this story should be. Because, like we were saying about the Doctor and Gilgamesh being kind of parallels, this is the fork in the road you could make by going, the Doctor stands up for a more decent society, whilst, you know, Gilgamesh is an absolute perv. But we don't get that. The Doctor actually kowtows to it. <laughs> You could maybe just about get away with it if it was painted as consensual sex all the way through. Just about. Not entirely, but just about. But there's talk of rape. Yes. And it's thrown in almost... Oh, and by the way, he rapes some people. It's like, no, that's, I don't care what point in society you're in. That's not okay. I don't care what the age limits were. I don't care what society said. I don't care about anything else. Rape is wrong regardless of the lens. And it was worrying that a book was put out with a BBC property that went, actually, it was okay back then. Because that's a slippery, slippery slope. Exactly. And, and it's something painted so early on. It's in page 24 where he talks of folk within within the Citadel in Atom who talks about this and how it's, it's multiple times that the wife is, is, wait, is raped. And to then have Gilgamesh painted not as this as this villain in a way that he should and for it to be brushed off by the doctor is is exactly like you say it should not be where this book should be aiming to be there should be this diverging line in between these two strong characters in this book and yet we don't get that yeah there were several kind of <laughs> moments as i was reading it it's like did i really just read that is that no surely not but it's there the only thing in its defence is the paint Gilgamesh is being typical of his time, but he seems to be the only character doing all this. And I didn't quite enjoy the storyline where his council are basically sending out spy missions that he doesn't have to go on just to get him out of the city for a while. Once again, that plotline seems to come up and then disappear very quickly without being followed up on. There's numerous plots against Gilgamesh, but we never find out how they end. Exactly. Um, it's, it's also... A... It's one of the key, one of the one of the pop like points down the line as well that the doctor actually actively uses as well because he because he uses uh, a young girl who's I think thirteen in this story to um, basically pretend to be a prostitute again after escaping prostitution to to come out and help them go through this 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 temple and for the yeah. doctor to do that as well. It, it, yeah. it enables this culture in such a way that it does not draw a red line on this. Yeah. Well, they should. 
But the internal dialogue at that point has the doctor complaining to himself, why would she get her breasts out to help us? This is this is meant to be the, the way in for folk to, to a new <laughs> era of Doctor Who in book form, and this is the content they have the Doctor doing. <laughs> it reads, and it could be because it's too early, but it reads like somebody's read Game of Thrones and wants to do a fanfic based on it. It's, it's just... It is that sort of adolescent way of, of approaching kind of mythology and, and such that absolutely doesn't work when you're trying to meddle in a, a kind of basically children's type science fiction show um, as well. That combination to me doesn't well, work. Just... I mean, we have had examples in the past in the show itself of where the Doctor conforms to that society in some way. Um, like, yeah. see, in the Crusades where, like, Joanna is getting married off um, to Saladin, I think, uh, and the Doctor doesn't tell her about it because it's a plan by Richard the Lionheart and such like this. But he's he still has remorse about it. He still has a conflicted argument about it with companions, with people. In this, it's just the Doctor has no qualms about conforming to the society in that way. Um, and it's it's kind of concerning for, for this Doctor in particular, for the seventh Doctor, because I guess that's one thing we should maybe discuss as well, is how did you find the seventh Doctor and Ace as their characterization compared to what we've seen before on TV with them? Ace wasn't terribly off, apart from the whole oh, look, I'm naked. But her kind of attitude, her bullshit nature and calling things out is going, well, this is just wrong, was fairly close to how I remember Ace. I wasn't too upset about that one. But the Doctor, this is not how I remember the seventh Doctor. It's callous. And here's the thing, we do know what we in the line, he does get very, very manipulative and controlling. But he wasn't the Doctor to me, Anthony. He just didn't feel like the Doctor. Especially talking, about, especially complaining about women not being naked enough. It's like, yeah. And the way that he treated Ace as well, to be honest for me, uh, especially oh, in the beginning of, of winning in the TARDIS and such. Um, there's this feeling, there's a feeling about the Doctor in, in that area in particular around the TARDIS scenes near the beginning where he's just so cold, he's so bitter towards her and, and antagonistic unnecessarily in a way yeah. that just fits basically a Colin Baker Doctor compared to <laughs> compared to this. And it, it almost reads like John Peel's sort of disdain for this Doctor in a way, that he is intentionally almost writing him in such an arsy way. How it struck me was Douglas Adam once said you can only change the Doctor 10% at a time. I know there was a plan for making this Doctor race fall out and for a divide to come up. And I got the impression that John Peel read the series Bible read the long-term goals and went, right, well, I can do that in five pages. What would take a whole life for doing, for doing this with? And the last time we still locked her in Ace, it was, and someone else's tea is getting cold. Come on, Ace, we've got work to do. And they go off, not hand in hand, but they go off, sense of camaraderie, togetherness. She's accepted the Doctor as her family, the TARDIS is her home. They are a unit. They are two people who go off to wage war against all who's wrong and indecent in the universe. And for them to go from that to this is just, I don't think Jaren is strong enough a word. It's just, no, this is not yeah. who we led. This is not Ace and the Doctor. Yeah, and, and you'd think someone who has reveled in, in Doctor Who mythology and continuity, because there are many, many references towards um, the classic series, that you'd think the characterization would, would stick with such a writer. To, to be able to continue that, but it's more so the, the factual, or to us, some of them 
and factual references that he makes rather than the actual characters that you would think would stick with him in, in the writing. And that's kind of the disappointing thing, I think, uh, within that key relationship because, yeah, you can have a conflicting Doctor and Ace uh, and, they, and they do have that in, in a more balanced way down the line, but this is it's just going hard too strong, absolutely out of nowhere, to try and, like you say, just hit all the things that, you know, you might want to do in an arc within the first book, and it, it doesn't it doesn't work for me in that way. And I guess one thing as well, just to tie into the Seventh Doctor, and, and my idea that John Peel has this disdain for, for the Seventh Doctor, <laughs> is, is the resolution to this. Now, there's a scene within the TARDIS, there's a bomb, cobalt bomb is connected, yes. uh, I believe, after Ishtar's within the TARDIS. And somehow the Seventh Doctor cannot do this. And so he has to revert somehow and call the spirit of John Pertwee to <laughs> somehow resolve the plot. And if there's ever been such a dig at a Doctor who we are meant to be following as the current Doctor, is to call in another doctor to do the resolution because you don't think that doctor's capable enough. It, it, it just is such a dig at that doctor to me. I would love to argue with you because it's got, the, it's got the germ of a good idea and the fact you can maybe call up different versions and different skills. I mean, when you saw the bother I had getting into this in the first place, me back in the 90s would have absolutely been a not a problem. I could get my head around IT absolutely fine, but it's a strange, strange line to me now. 2020s, but it wasn't explored like that. It was just, oh, I'm not good enough. John Pertwee was. And I'll show you he's John Pertwee because he'll say, jump into Jehoshaphat an awful lot and keep rubbing his chin and call everyone Liz and Joe. And it's a frustrating way to resolve a story where, again, you're meant to be introducing this doctor potentially to a new audience in the book form. Um, yeah. That you have to rely on a character like an older version of that character because you feel this one's not capable enough. It doesn't give confidence into the character you're wanting to project to your audience in a new form with, with a book line. No, and everything we've seen about the Doctor and multi-Doctor stories suggests that they're of very similar minds and experiences, even just recently with The Giggle. I mean, some of the best parts of that for me were when David Tennant and Shuti Gatwa said the same line at the same time. Even the same intonation, it's just like highlighting this is the same person. This is hmm. different face, same person, different ha- different hardware, same software. It is, it is frustrating sides, but yeah. I guess one thing to try and be positive about <laughs> about this series is the titular Time Worm. I actually quite like how the Time Worm is within the book as a, as a villain and hmm. some of the lore behind it as well in terms of where they've came from, from their home planet, and how that uh, society tries to deal with and, and helps to resolve the situation. What do you think of the Time Worm itself in, in this form, firstly, before it goes into its next uh, evolution, as it were? Ishtar, or is it Katar, they called it at first? Isht- Ishtar the, yeah, is the name she takes when she's in yeah. Mesopotamia. Uh, she had a different name again when she was in the Anu, didn't she? It was Katar or something like that. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I'm very quickly looking up. Glancing over Bookworm very quickly, and already I've read the word breasts three times. Uh, <laughs> uh, Quataka. Quataka, thank you. 
Kwataka was the name of Ishtar, yeah. Yep, so even that, various names. They could have played an analogy in there. The doctor's got several faces. He's known as different things in different worlds. But no, we're just going to thread this in. She was a very villain of the week for me up until she got implanted into the TARDIS circuits. And that's where things got interesting for me, where she basically hijacked TARDIS, nicked part of it, and became a whole new creature. She's essentially the TARDIS part two, next generation almost. It's a novel idea, and I think one I'd like to have seen a different author tackle. It felt very much like an afterthought. It's like, by the way, John, this is what we need to have by the end of the book. You think of Uncle Terrence something to work with. Here's how it's going to finish. It didn't feel like one of his ideas because it felt quite fresh and innovative. And it's like, no, that's not him. That's not the guy we've just been reading for 200 odd pages. I guess for myself, Ishtar as a villain, I did actually quite like her plot, her idea of what she was going to do, how she controls people in this place and, and her feelings about you know how frustrated she was to be in such a backwards area in her mind compared to the level of civilization she's used to. I guess, yeah, like you say, it's it's similar to, I don't know, I, I would maybe call John Peel kind of the Richard Martin of books in this way. He, t- he tends to t- turn, be turned up in a lot of Dalek stories and then he's not actually that good at what he's doing. Um, and when he does have another chance at something, he's, he's a bit ropey and there's, there's some glaring mistakes made. So, yeah, it's, it feels like that there was some good sort of kernel in that with with Ishtar. I, I did quite like this that idea, that kind of core idea of, of someone crashing down and trying to rebuild through yeah. some like mind-controlled population, um, a new civilization and her own making. Yeah, I do quite like, like you say, how it was done at the end, just about bringing in this new de- developed version. But like you say, it is mired and bog- bogged down by everything else bringing in that baggage, the way some of it is written in, in a quite a sort of formulaic way, it can be quite repetitive. But overall, I did quite like what he did with, with with this film. And that end bit in the TARDIS did make me go, oh, well, at least yeah. this looks like it'll be interesting in, in the next one, at least. Yeah, and the idea that the Doctor's responsible for it, because there's some kind of jibaiti about whether it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or if the Doctor's done this by being too arrogant and presumptuous about things. You're talking about John Peel obviously knowing his stuff and knowing his history. The fact that it was Tom Baker delivered this bit of information from back when the Centaurans first invaded Gallifrey is like... And that's another one as well. Like we were saying about how, you know, he wants to try and paint himself as this renounced fan with loads of... Um, renowned fan with loads of mentions of, of the old series amongst it. But the way he describes this fourth doctor in that scene near the beginning in the TARDIS, mm. uh, he's he's wearing burgundy clothes and a burgundy scarf and, and all this red stuff like season eighteen. But then he's like, "Oh, come along, Leela," because he's at the end of like invasion of time or something. And it's it, that's that's not what the Doctor wore. It's <laughs> no. it's 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 bizarre how small little details like that somehow are just not picked up on by what's meant to be a big fan. <laughs> And I can't believe I'm about to say this. In John Peel's defence, the world was a different place back then. We didn't have the internet; didn't exist to the same extent. The references books were quite thin in the ground. People were based a lot of their who lore on memory. So chances are he's pulled this out from his memories, and he's been like maybe 
80% accurate in it. He's been off just a wee bit. But again, it also highlights how little he was edited, because a decent editor would have caught that. I do wonder what the book would have been like if I had a decent editor in place. It may have been a bit more coherent, a bit more structured. It may have had a few things taken out of it, may have had a bit more substance in different areas. So they might have gone, are we sure sleeping with 13-year-olds is a good idea? Well, hell of a lucky the Daily Mail didn't get one list back in the time they have a way the White House-led campaign to get rid of Doctor Who books. When you think about <laughs> issues Colin Baker had with his stuff, and you watch it now, it's like, this was deemed too violent? What if they'd read with some of these books? It'd have been prophecy fulfilled. Look what Doctor Who's become. This is terrible. We're letting our children read this. And even then, there's no hint anywhere in the book that it's not suitable for younger audiences. I mean, wait, think about this, Alistair. So you'd have been about... I would have been in my early 20s when these first came out. But I've been a Doctor Who fan for quite a while, so potentially 10-year-old me could have picked this up and gone, oh, I wonder what this is about. You can almost imagine the horror going through and going, sorry, what? Sorry, what? <laughs> The idea that young girls may have picked up as well and going, oh, is this normal behaviour? It's like, no, no, it's not. We got very lucky the general public don't know about time warming. Yeah, I mean, well, this is something actually I I have had a wee look into. So how things were reported back in June of 1991 about this. And like you see, thankfully the Daily Mail didn't get in touch about this, but The Sun did do an article about it. Uh, and big entitled Dr. Blue is the <laughs> headline of this. And it details all those salacious details that we have been chatting about in this book and its bizarre adolescent idea of sex and such. But there was other uh, examples at the time as well, because I was curious to see how fans at the time felt after, you know, two years away from Doctor Who finally getting some form of content. And it's been interesting because I was reading uh, Doctor Who magazine uh, issue 177 to see what the review was at the time of it. And I've been reading this review, I think it's by Gary Russell. And yeah, (laughs) (laughs) even by then, this one people were not a big fan of at the time. It's the things we've been talking about, about the way that they talk about sex, the way that they have literal 13-year-olds um, naked mm. in this book, the way that uh, some of the characterization of the Seventh Doctor is and Ace is compared to, to others. And the kind of barrier, I guess, that references like we were talking about with the Fourth Doctor and the Third Doctor and all of this, the bar- that could be a strong barrier to, to, to a new audience. Mm. And yeah, it's been interesting seeing that in Doctor Who magazine and other kind of contemporary reviews at the time. Because, you know, you'd think Doctor Who fans would be like, oh, they, met, they mentioned John Pertwee, and he's seen Liz, and he's seen Sarah Jane. And you'd yeah. think that would be titillating stuff for Doctor Who fans, but I think they were wise enough to realise <laughs> this yeah, is not a not way really to cool. expand or maintain an audience. <laughs> well, was it Craig Hinton that turned the phrase fan wink? <laughs> yes. That feels quite... Yeah, it's like an overexcited teenage fan writing anything that they can to hand uh, and that's what what comes out in this book and i said before john pertwee said no john pertwee, john peel said himself he just wanted to get the book out and be the first person to have done this and it shows john no offense it shows yeah it does yeah. it does feel like it's it's not constrained in a way that's planned 
But on the same no. token, uh, one of my favourite books in the range is So Vile a Sin by Kate Orman. And it is absolutely drowning in past references, but not to the point where you're pulled out of the story. It keeps you involved and keeps you going and keeps things moving around. And it'll throw the odd crumb out here to the long-time fans and then move on. So it can be done tastefully and properly, but just wasn't on this occasion. Yeah. The fact that it starts off straight away with, here's Tom Baker. And then the line, there's John Pertwee. It's like he didn't feel Sylvester McCoy's doctor was enough to carry this by itself. He had to throw in the other yeah. other doctors. And, and to be honest, you know, I've been reading the continuing adventures of the Time One series for the next three ones and, and, and Time <laughs> One Revelation, where, you know, that's a key point. It's, it's about past <laughs> Doctor Adventures oh. and such and, and and it's it's can be used in a very smart way if you've got someone willing to find a smart way to do it. And, and it's because writers by then had a time to sit down and go, right, what do I want to do differently? What's a new thing that I could explore? Rather than just being excited that you're writing a new Doctor Who story and you're the first one doing it, which is what this provides for us, unfortunately. And not getting too far ahead of ourselves, but Paul Cornell's Time Worm Revelations is it's a thing of beauty. It's I still love it. It's a brilliant, brilliant book, and I think it probably saved the range. Uh, it's just a shame you have to d- sit through the first three in the series before you get to that. <laughs> I, I would, I would say, I mean, I'm spoiling ahead, I guess. Um, Exodus, I, I, I find quite enjoyable. It's a nice traditional kind of romp for the most part of a Terence Dicks thriller mm-hmm. sort of idea. It's what you expect from Uncle Terry, yes. It's yeah. I have one particular sticking point with that, but that's one to come back to. It's but yeah, by and large it's a good alternative history World War Two romp. It's yeah. If you can't trust Terry Sticks with Doctor Who, who can you trust? And and that's that's actually maybe an interesting thing I'd I'd like to find out more about is you know, John Peel naturally, like you've been saying, was adamant to be this first writer in that way. I'd want to know if is it is it Peter Darvel Evans, who was the range yeah. overseer? I would wonder if he thought, right, well, having someone who's just keen as a bean, no idea how it will pan out, but he can do that. But we need a safe pair of hands to do the next mm. bit. I think that's maybe why the next one went with Ten Sticks in that way. So I'm happy they did, because it does provide that safe pair of hands for a book, at least. Me no bones about it. Paul Cornell saved the range if he hadn't done Time Worm Revelation. But he was fairly unknown at that point, wasn't he? I don't think we'd ever seen Paul Cornell before that point. I'm not too sure, actually. I will we'll actually discuss more in detail. I'll know more a bit more about his history by then. Um, I think he was more involved in fanzines and all the rest of it beforehand. He was. Yeah, I think he was within that sphere at that time. But you know, it's good that they were experimenting in other ways as well with getting people like him in, and thankfully they worked very, very well. Because <laughs> uh, otherwise, yeah. yeah, you don't want another John Peel. No offense to him. No, who's still writing into that? He's doing Doctor Who adjacent stuff. Just must be a check. Some kind of French equivalent. Or... But I don't. I don't see his style of writing being a, a dynamic way to continue a range like this in that way. Especially like we're saying with the way you've done that characterisation of the Doctor. How is he going to then? Is he going to just flippantly change it in his version again? If he does a few books later and and such, it's it's important to have some form of gradual build and and, and planning with with this range. Especially since they initially tried that with the four-parter and three-parter books, where you're wanting yeah. to build that arc in some way. 
I'm just trying to think that now. Is it, I think it's just the Time Warner Quartet and the Cat's Cradle trilogy. It's like the, the only ones that are overtly marked as being sets, aren't they? All the rest are kind of loosely piled together. Yeah. There's other thematic flights, but this one's the, the only ones that are named, as it were, in this way. I mean, there's loose connections later on, because you've got original sin, is obviously the Dove and Survivalist and bookends for each other, but there's no overtly connect, overt connections going forward. We see one of some market research suggested to them that, yeah, people are seeing corpets and trilogies and are panicking and are buying, find another way of doing it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, if you're expecting a range to be Doctor Who series like this, Doctor Who just had its own adventures every so often. I've, I've just, I just hear a story, here's the next story the next month. And within the yeah, four and that- stories, and that's that was the contained thing they did, and that sometimes might be the better way to try and draw other folk in. Yeah, but at the same time, what we what I love about the new adventures is the overall arc. Now, now I've had time to sit down and get into it properly, it's it can get involved in epic in a way that the TV series just can't because the TV series is meant to be a thing that you can tune into with the family. You can miss a couple; it's not a big deal. It's just good, solid family entertainment, one and done, ninety percent of the time, and that's absolutely as it should be. The books were a chance; the new adventures were a chance to try something different, and yeah, they're definitely different. And I remain quite a fan, <laughs> but it, it can be hard to recommend them because you can't say start with Time Worm, and you can't say start with Time Worm Revelation because people will go, but it says but it says book four. Yeah, I know, but trust me, just you'll work it out. Yeah. There's not a lot of obvious jumping on points. Original sins possibly one. Yeah, that's the thing that the series, like we were discussing earlier, with like human nature, like that's in itself a good story, but publishing that on its own, I I am curious to to know how, in particular, fans who are just picking it up because they liked the the two thousand and seven story, find it because you're just venturing into a different realm of Doctor Who completely when you're reading that in a lot of ways. So, yeah, it, it'll be interesting seeing how people, and you're welcome to write in, whoever is listening, about how you found it and how you might find if you picked up books like that compared to the original series, compared to your experiences with Doctor in the past. It'll be interesting to know because it is, it's an oddity within the fandom. It's one that's never quite explored as much as other aspects of, say, like Big Finish or um, other spin-offs. What I found is that New Adventures fans tend to be very, very passionate about it in a way that maybe the other sections aren't quite... It's a very all-or-nothing part of the fandom. You're either all in, you know it all, or it's... Yeah, I heard Long Barrow was good. <laughs> yeah. It's, New Adventures fans tend to be very, very passionate about it, and that's probably the biggest selling point for the thing. It's. I didn't think when I first saw what, what, that was book nine back in the 90s, I didn't think we, I'd be talking about this still in the, in the 2020s. And yet, here we are. <laughs> it's, it's It certainly has lasted, you know, that 30-odd years of a range to still merit some discussion. And and, and and like we saw a few, well, 15 years ago now, but um, with the new series, when they pull ideas from it as well, it, yeah. it can be a, a place to pull interesting ideas for going forward. So it, it does have its place. It just needs to... Be understood a bit more, I think, and hopefully we'll be trying to do that with this podcast. <laughs> yes, very much so. But talking about ideas, the copper the copper inlays in the city of of Kish, we saw that again in Pompeii, in the fires of Pompeii. 
they had a role, yeah. the whole office would build around what was a small detail in Time Warp. And it just shows you the ideas were there. They've stand up to be recycled and reused, and people don't start shooting and bawling about, oh, we've seen this before, go away. It's like, oh, I remember this, or that's a good idea, or here's how it can be done. Well, it's, yeah. there's always going to be a degree of recycling that Doctor Who, and it's, it's fine. Exactly. But on that note, I think it's exciting for us going forward to see those ideas, these original ideas in this range yeah. going forward. So I just want to say thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Alistair, for joining us. Pleasure. And hopefully we'll be joining next time. Um, hopefully we'll be chatting next time about Time Worm Exodus. Yes, looking forward to that one, Anthony. See you all soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Too Prod Too Deep podcast. You can contact us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at Too Broad Too Deep Pod, and that's with the number two. You can also email us at Too Broad Too Deep Pod at gmail.com, and that's with the word two, spelled T O O. Leave some comments with us about how you feel about the range and certain books of the Virgin New Adventures as we go along on this journey. Hope to hear from you soon.